Good morning, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Ben King. I am one of the pastors here at JCF Williamstown. It's uh, my joy, my privilege to be able to preach the word to you this morning and, and, and regularly throughout the year. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the table. Uh, you can feel free to take one uh, and use it during the service. Take it home with you. Give it away to someone. Uh, the more copies of God's Word out in Williamstown and surrounding territories, the better. Uh, so take it. We would love for you to have it. First uh, Peter 2, starting in verse 9, say amen when you got it. All right, you guys are on it. I don't have it. I don't, I don't. <laughs> He said amen. <laughs> All right, first, first Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you mind if I read that one more time? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, this is your word. It's perfect, authoritative, sufficient for us. So Lord, we pray that you would feed us by it, nourish us by it. Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Help us as we come to your word to see Christ as supremely worthy, supremely beautiful, supremely wonderful. That in seeing him, we might speak of him to everyone that you would give us the opportunity to. For your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1948, J. Howard Pugh and his siblings started the Pugh Charitable Trust with money from their family's successful oil business. You know today is Sunoco. Pugh had strong Christian convictions, and he was concerned about the worldly direction of many of our country's institutions. Um, Alongside his friend, Billy Graham, they helped found Christianity Today, which is one of the largest Christian publications in our country. They also used that money to help found Gordon-Conwell Seminary and a number of other evangelical institutions. At the very beginning... This trust existed to stem the tide of secularism and worldliness and to support institutions and fund institutions that would uh, promote Christian values. Today, that same trust 
which was created to fight against secularization, gives uh, annually millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood and uh, dozens of other institutions that are, uh, would have been despised by the trust found founders. Uh, what, what, what's happened? Well, it's what many refer to as mission drift. You ever heard that term? Mission drift. It is when an institution gradually loses its original conviction and therefore loses its mission. That danger exists for massive trust funds and for educational institutions, but it also exists and maybe especially exists for the church. Last week we saw Peter reminding his readers about the danger of forgetting your identity. You remember that last week? The danger of forgetting your identity. And this week we find that there is just as much danger in forgetting your mission. There's just as much danger in forgetting your mission. God has made us his own people and given us, brothers and sisters, given us the glorious mission of making disciples of all nations for the glory of his name. And yet for many that profess Christ, that mission is far down on the priority list. A gradual loss of conviction leads to a loss of mission. And every every generation of Christians has to recover this central biblical commitment that the primary mission of the church, hear what I'm saying, that the primary mission of the church is to preach the gospel to the world, to make disciples and gather them into the church where they can grow into mature followers of Christ that they might worship and obey him now and forever, all for the glory of God. That's why the church exists. Do you remember I told you I was going to come back to this? What is our mission? Okay, it's, I mean, you can slice and dice it a bunch of different ways. You can say it a bunch of different ways. But here is our mission. Why does JCF Williamstown exist? It does exist because of God. What does it exist for? To make and mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Amen? That's why we exist as a church. But there is this, this danger of missions drift. How, how regularly do you find yourself having conversations with unbelievers? Like look back on your week, look back on your month. How many conversations have you had with unbelievers about the gospel? Or, or, or look, better yet, like how often have you prayed? for unbelievers, that they would come to know him? How often have you prayed to the Lord for opportunities that he might use you for the sake of preaching the gospel to someone? Right? That, that, that mission statement, those aren't just words. It's not just like you start a church, you have a mission statement. They're not just words. The, the, they're our guiding directive. They are why this church exists. And so Peter writes to remind us that we might uh, not, not fall into this trap of missions drift. And, and he's going to remind us in three ways. Uh, he, he's going to remind us what God has made you. So here, if you're the, if you're the outline person, if you uh, want the notes in advance, here they are. What God has made you, the mission he's assigned you, 
and the mercy he's shown you. What God has made you, the mission he's assigned you, and the mercy he's shown you. Let's talk about what God has made you. Uh, our, our mission is intrinsically linked to our identity. You see, when we forget our identity, we tend to lose our mission with it. But it's also true that when we forget our mission, we tend to lose our identity. Uh, last week, I told you that Peter's concern was to remind us of our identity in Christ. And that, that, that concern, that, that desire to remind, it culminates here in this summary of who we are before God. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. So that, he reminds us who we are, so that we will joyfully engage and take up the mission that he's given us to proclaim his excellencies to the world. In other words, we will be a people who are actively engaged in the mission of God when we remember who God has made us through his son. You know, uh, one of my favorite movies, like, of all time, like, top three, you, know, you guys are all like, what is it, is the 1991 Steven Spielberg cult classic, Hook. Do you guys know that movie? <laughs> you got to watch it. If you haven't seen it, you got, now look, this is actually a point. I'm going to tell you in a little bit, we see things that are beautiful, and then we have to tell people about it. I'm doing it right now. It's a great movie. You have to see it. Okay, anyway, if you haven't seen it, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's the story of Peter Pan, and he's left Neverland, and he's grown up. He's become a corporate lawyer. He's like middle-aged, and he starts a family, and in the process, he has totally forgotten his uh, former life of fairies and fighting pirates. He's totally forgotten his former life as Peter Pan, and what's left is Peter Banning, a middle-aged, selfish, workaholic who neglects his wife and kids, but then Captain Hook kidnaps his children, and he has to find a way to rescue them. He, and, and, and he wants to, like, call the FBI, and he's like, maybe he's in London. He's like, we got to call the American police. But Granny Wendy, Granny Wendy, she knows the truth, and she tells it to him straight. She says, Peter, only you can save your children. Only you can save your children. Somehow, you must go back. You must make yourself remember. And he's like, well, well, remember what? And Granny, very, uh, Granny Wendy very hauntingly says to him, Peter, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? You know, what's happening is that Peter is having trouble coming to grips with his mission because he doesn't know who he is. You see, P Peter's having trouble coming to grips with the fact that he's the one that has to go and save them and rescue them from Cap Captain Hook because he doesn't know who he is. He's forgotten who he is. And it's a snapshot of what happens in the church. We fail to embrace our mission because we don't really know who we are. We forget what God has made us. And so Peter, the apostle Peter, not Peter Pan, he reminds us. In short, he says, if, if you are in Christ, you are God's people. Like, don't just gloss over that. If you are in Christ, you are God's people. He, and, and he gives us three descriptions using the same like exalted and affectionate language that he used to describe his people in the Old Testament. Uh, and he, he applies those descriptions to the church. So look, first he says, you, you see there in verse 9, you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. He, he's quoting Deuteronomy 10 where God tells the Hebrews that out of all the peoples of the earth, 
He has chosen them and set his love upon them to be his special people. And he applies that language to us as Christians. If you are in Christ, it's because he has set his love upon you. And and it's yet another reminder, it's yet another reminder that, that you are not ultimately among the redeemed because of your choice of him, but because of his choice of you. Okay, you did choose him. You did put your faith in him. You trusted him. But that was precipitated upon his choice of you. It was based upon his choice of you. You are a people chosen, elected, beloved before the foundations of the earth and foreordained by God to inherit salvation. Uh, but I want you to notice especially that word race. It's the, it's the Greek word genos, from which we get our word genus, like if you're into science, you know, it's like, you know, phylum and genus and species. I don't know what the order is, but that word genus. It means a unique people or family. And understand that, that Peter is not saying that we have been chosen because we are unique. He's saying that we are unique because he has chosen us. We have become the unique, distinct, beloved people of God because of his unilateral choice of us. By virtue of God's choice, you are a part of his unique people. And, and, and here is the key. What makes these people unique? What, what binds them together as a people or as a family? It is their common faith in Christ. It is their union with Christ. It's that they have all been made new creatures by the power of the gospel through the working of God's spirit. And so God's people are marked by a supernatural unity. Listen, do you hear what I'm saying? God's people are marked by a supernatural unity that transcends all worldly categories. It's not your your hobbies that make you a people. It's not your common interests, common life stage that make you a people. It is that you are bound up together in Christ. You are a chosen race. Second, he says, you are a royal priesthood. We don't think about the church in 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 those terms too often. You are a royal priesthood. Again, Peter is quoting God's word to his people in the Old Testament, uh, from the Old Testament, after he delivered them out of Egypt. Uh, And he says to them in Exodus 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. In other words, they, they would mediate the blessing of God to one another and to the world. And so it is for us in Christ. We are in service of the king of kings to mediate the blessing of God through the declaration of the gospel to one another and to the nations. That's what priests do. They, they are mediators. Now, now let me be clear. Uh, your role as a priest does not mean you have the, the ability to negotiate peace between God and men. Right? There is one mediator between God and man, uh, the man Christ Jesus, In that sense, there's only one mediator. However, you are a a conduit, a vessel, a channel through which the news of what God has done in Christ is declared. And in that way, you are a priest. But notice, I want you to see that he says you are royal priests. This this, this, This is probably the most unique way in which you don't know who you are. Like you haven't thought about this. You are royal priests. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, uh, the monarchy and the priesthood were not supposed to be together. They, they, were, they were separate, right? D- king David was not a priest. He was a king. The monarchy and the priesthood stayed separate. You had the high priest, you had the priesthood, then you had the, 
the uh, king. But the Old Testament spoke of a day when the priesthood and the monarchy would come together. Right, The king and the, and the priest and the prophet would all come together, and they do in Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king, and they come together in us as well, so that we are royal priests. And what that means is, is though you might be a little reepicheep in the service of the king. You know reepicheep? Some of you kids, you know reepicheep? You remember reepicheep from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia? He's this little mouse fighting in the service of Aslan, and yet this little mouse has such a nobility about him, such a royalty about him. Why? Because he's a mouse? No, because he's in devoted service to Aslan, to the king. And so it is with us. We, we are marked by, because of this royalty, because of this nobility that we have by virtue of our role and our service to the king, we have a supernatural, are you ready for this word? We have a supernatural audacity about us. We ought to. A supernatural audacity that is willing to risk much for the sake of fulfilling our service to the king. You know, the audacity, it's boldness, it's courage. You're a chosen race with a unity that transcends worldly categories. You are a royal priesthood with a, with a supernatural audacity and boldness. But you are also a holy nation. In that same passage in Exodus, he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this can be taken two ways, and P Peter probably intends a little bit of both. On the one hand, it means that God has made you into his distinct people, right? Holy, that is to, to set apart, to make separate. And so he has made you his holy, separate people, uh, called out of the world, distinct for God. Later, he's going to say, you're a people for my own possession, but it also means that you are called to uniquely display the character of God in the holiness of your lives. That your lives themselves are to testify to the goodness and to the character of God. And you, you see that you are, an, the fact that you are a nation, you're a holy nation, there's another one. We don't tend to think about the church in terms of like nation state, right? In, in like national categories. And yet the fact that you're a nation reminds us that we are citizens of a country. We are not ultimately, I imagine most of us, if not all of us, are citizens of the United States. But we are not ultimately citizens of this country. We are citizens of heaven, citizens of a heavenly country. And your lives then are meant to display the goodness and the holiness of that country. And that means we as God's people will be marked not only by a spiritual unity and a spiritual audacity, but by a supernatural oddity. You'll be marked by a supernatural unity, an audacity, and an oddity. You're going to look strange. You're going to sound weird. People are going to be like, what is up with you? And sometimes they're going to do that in not so polite ways. And what I'm telling you is God has made you that way. Embrace it. Now, Peter combines all three of these descriptions to remind us of what God has made us into. You are God's true people, his treasured possession, and that ought to be a tremendous comfort to us. To know that in Christ we have come to be possessed by God. Not, not possessed in the weird like Halloween way. Possess we, we are his treasured possession that we are God's and he delights in us. But the fact that we are his treasure, treasured possession also reminds us okay, that we are 
uh, we are like instruments in his hand. We are his possession. We belong to him. We are instruments. He, listen, it's, it's like a carpenter, you know, like a carpenter takes up a tool to build a house. So God takes us up to build his house for the glory of his name. Well, he's made you into a people for a purpose. So listen, that's what he's made you. But what I'm trying to tell you is when you understand what he's made you, what you will see is that he has made you that way for a purpose. So that's what he's made you. Let me tell you the mission he's assigned you. That's what he's made you. Here's the mission he's assigned you. Look again at verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, so that, in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. J.C.F. Williamstown, this is what God has made you for, that you may proclaim his excellencies. That's why, you, do you know that? That's why you exist. Like there, there's other stuff that you do. Like you exist to be like a good husband, a good wife, a good employee, a good friend, a good brother. A good, but ultimately, at the very core of what God has made you to be, he has made you to be his people so that you might proclaim his excellencies. Do you believe that? And look, this has always been the mission of God's people, by the way. Like, this is not something new. It's always been the mission of God's people. Do you know when God made Adam and Eve, he made them as image bearers? They're supposed to image forth the character of God, the glory of God, and the way that they exercise dominion over all of God's creation. They're supposed to image forth the glory of God. And what is God's mandate to them? Multiply. God's like, fill this bad boy with image bearers. I want this whole thing filled with little image bearers of me that my glory might be seen. Or when he comes to Abraham, remember that, Genesis 12? And he's like, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And I'm going to make you a, a, a people that are greater than the stars in the sky. And I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. Remember that? Or, or what about what we read earlier in Isaiah 43? Brian read this for us. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches for for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give to drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That's why we exist. It's why God has formed us as his people, that we might proclaim his excellencies. The mission is proclamation. It is the, the declaration of his praise. Peter says it is to proclaim his excellencies. And listen, here's something I want you to see. What I want you to see is that Peter is actually not calling you to do, do something that is counterintuitive to your nature at all. He's not, do, he's not calling you to do something that is counterintuitive to the way God has wired you at all. By God's sheer grace, listen, by God's sheer grace, you have come to see something more infinitely beautiful than anything in the entire universe. More beautiful than all the stars of the sky. More beautiful than the most brilliant sunset. You have seen something of infinite beauty. And our natural response to seeing something really beautiful is that we have to tell other people about it. In fact, we really can't help ourselves but tell people about it. 
Like, look, this week, I know it ended in heartbreak. Did you talk to people about the Phillies this week? You did, right? I know it was an ugly finish. But like when it looked beautiful, when it was like, yo, they're going to the World Series, you didn't have any problem talking about it. You were like, check them out. You, you watching the game tonight? I'm watching the game tonight. Come and see. Well, what about, you know, when the Eagles, you know, win after a, after a big game? Like after that Dolphins win? Like we do this with everything. When you listen to a good podcast, you guys, podcast people out there, you listen to a good podcast, you finish it, and the, almost immediately you're like, who can I send this to? I want, someone's got to listen to this. Or like, like social media, the people that develop social media, they know this intuitively. It's why when you flick through Instagram, the reels, you, that's why there's a share button. Because as soon as you see some funny meme or some funny reel or some funny video, you're like, someone's got to see this. It's, we're hardwired this way. Or I told Carrington, you're going to be one of my <laughs> illustrations. What, I'm going to talk to the Swifties. You know the Swifties? Do you know, what the, you, do, above, above all, the Swifties, they want you to know how talented Taylor Swift is. I see. And it's hardwired into us. When we see something valuable and worthy, we, we, we long to show it, to, to speak of it. it. It's how God has made us. In fact, listen, we're, we're so wired this way that your joy in that thing, whatever that thing is, you see something beautiful, your joy in it will actually be incomplete. It will actually be lacking something until you are able to share it with someone. It'll be like you held in a sneeze. That's a weird analogy, but that's what came to my mind. It will be like, like you have to, it, your joy in it will not be full until you have shared it with someone until you have spoken of it. See, we proclaim what we prize. We exalt what we esteem. We tell what we treasure. We announce what we admire, and we declare what we delight in. That's, that's how God has wired us. It's how he's made us. And if that's the case, I'm going to ask you a question. If that's the case, and it is, why do you think we find ourselves sluggishness, or sluggish, or, or, or s- slow, or hesitant, or even apathetic towards this glorious mission of telling and proclaiming the most beautiful thing in the universe, which is the redemption that God has worked for sinners through the life and death and resurrection of his son? Why are we so sluggish and hesitant? Well, I think at this point, many of you would say to me, and I would probably say at some point, that like, I, 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 um, I don't know what to say. Or like, uh, I, I don't know how to, maybe, maybe like there's going to be questions I don't know the answer to. Or like, I don't, I don't know how to move the conversation from, you know, the Phillies to something spiritual. Like maybe we, maybe we need an evangelism class, or like an apologetics class, and then we'll be ready. And don't mishear me, like, I think an apologetics and evangelism class would be wonderful, and and Lord willing, down the line, we'll have something like that. But, Peter has already told us we're a family, right? You agree? Amen? We're a family in Christ? Okay, and families, good families are honest with each other, right? They tell the truth to each other. So can we, let's be honest for a second. It's not that we don't have enough education, Right? It's, it's not that we like, don't have the right answers. It's not, that's not it, is it? There's something underneath. 
There's, there's, a, there's a heart thing going on. And what we find is, is that we disengage from God's mission for, for one of two reasons. Either one, you're afraid. It's not that you don't know what to say. It's that if in conversation you fumble around, you're afraid of how it will look. You're afraid of what someone will think of you. You're afraid of the embarrassment. It's not that you can't answer every question. It's that you're afraid you will look unintelligent, foolish, or even crazy. It's not that you don't know how to move the conversation in a spiritual direction. Right? You don't have that problem with the Phillies, do you? There'll be someone just like eating their lunch. They're like, yo, did you watch the game last night? Boom, I'm in. No problem. But you see, the difference is that there's no cost to bringing up the Phillies. There's no social cost to bringing up the Phillies. There very well may be a cost to bringing up Jesus Christ, and we're afraid of it. We're afraid to pay it. And like Grandy, Wendy, Peter would say to us, don't, don't you know who you are? You are royal priests in service to the king who are completely approved of and delighted in by God. You, you know how the, the, the scriptures, the scriptures describe people in a bunch of different ways, but one of my favorite ways is just describes people as dust. He remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And you know what's happening when you're afraid is that you're just afraid of another fellow pile of dust, afraid of what they'll think of you, afraid of how they'll regard you, when you have the approval and the delight of the God of the universe. That's number one. Either, either one, you're afraid, or two, you're apathetic. Like I told a family, right? I told you, family, we've got to say hard stuff to each other. You're either afraid or you're apathetic. A disinterested sluggishness has settled over your heart because you have settled for some lesser beauty than Jesus Christ. But we speak about what we love, and you are reluctant or remiss in speaking of him. If you are reluctant or remiss in speaking of it, of him, it's because your heart itself is not filled with a sight of his beauty and his worth. It's, it's not that his beauty has faltered or lessened in any way. It's that you have taken your eyes off of him and settled for lesser beauties. And so you talk about other stuff. You talk about TV shows and Instagram reels and sports teams and internet shopping deals. I'm not saying any of that stuff is wrong. Look, here, look ask yourself some questions. What do you love to talk about? What do you love to think about? And what do you love to talk about? Like, what's something you could just, like, absolutely lose track of time with, no problem talking about it? Is it him? Is it his excellency? Is it the, the redemption that he has accomplished in Christ? You see here, Peter is saying God has made us to proclaim his excellencies. This is what we were made for, to marvel at his grace and then to make him known to everyone the Lord would give us opportunity to speak to. And so the question is, do you see the matchless beauty of his excellencies? If that word excellency is, is hard to translate, but it means something like all of the reasons he is worthy of praise. And, and, and where do we even begin with that, right? Like, where do we begin and where do we end? Like, it's endless. Like, we could talk about his omnipotent might. 
which has created both planets and galaxies with just the utterance of his voice. Or we could talk about his inscrutable wisdom, which confounds both the wise and the sage, and it lifts up the simple. Or we could talk of his boundless knowledge, which both names the stars and numbers the head, the hairs on your head. Or we could consider his unfailing faithfulness, which remains, remains steady throughout every season of life and throughout every age of redemptive history. Or what about the eternality of God? You know, the foreverness of God that finds him blazing in all his glory before the ages began and now and forevermore has no beginning and no end? Or what about the immensity of God? You know, the bigness of God who measures the universe with the span of his fingers and who gathers all the waters like a microscopic little drop, like a dew drop in the, in the palm of his hand. Or what about the ubiquity of God? You've never heard that word before. I'm trying to sound smart. The ubiquity of God, that is, he's everywhere all the time, and he manifests his presence, especially in the gathering of his people. Or what about the triunity of God? That for all eternity, he has existed in the loving fellowship of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Or what about uh, the creativity of God? Do we, mar do we proclaim the excellencies of the creativity of God who formed both the lion and the lizard, the hippopotamus and the hummingbird, Mount Everest and mitochondria and all the planets and all the, and all the little particles that make up everything? Or think about his, his generosity by which he gives to all things life and breath and everything. And what's more, who gave his own son for our salvation. But what about his justice and righteousness by, righteousness by which he promises to punish all sin? To bring to justice all evil. To rid the world of everything that is wicked. Are you filled with praise because of his gracious work to, re to reveal himself both in creation and through his word? Or like, what about this? The fact that throughout history, he has faithfully preserved his word so that you could know him. And brothers and sisters, most of all, do you see the excellency of his rescuing love? Do you see the excellency of his rescuing love by which you were called out of darkness and into his marvelous light? His saving grace by which he forgave your sins, made his spirit to dwell in you, and made you his children forever. You see, all of his excellencies and perfections come together most vividly, most brightly, most beautifully in his son who is the radiance of the glory of God and the savior of his peoples. Br brother and sisters, this is what the apostles saw in Christ. This is what the apostles saw. They saw all the manifold excellencies of God in Christ who died in their place and rose from the dead for their salvation. And so even under threat of imprisonment and beatings and torture and death, they confessed, Acts 4.20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but, upon pain of death, 
We can't help but speak of it. Do what you got to do. We're going to tell the world. We, got, we have to. Or, th- or think of the woman at the well. You remember John 4, the woman at the well? She goes to draw water in the middle of the day to avoid the judgment of the crowd. But after she encounters Jesus as the Messiah and Savior, she runs into the town calling to all the people, come and see, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Brothers and sisters, that's evangelism. That's the mission. That's procl- pro- Evangelism is come and see. Come and see the Lord. Come and see his beautiful work in his son, Jesus Christ. Come and see what the Lord has done. And, and, and lastly, before I, I move on to this last point, would you notice that this mission is not a solo mission? It's not a solo mission. It's a team mission. It's a community mission. The context of this passage is the identity that we have as the people of God. And notice all the, do you see all the you's there? Right? Like he's like, um, uh, but you are a chosen race uh, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. We tend to be like, we tend to make those singular you's. But they're all plural. They're all plural. Look, it's that you plural, that you all may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you all out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is not primarily the the sole mission of each individual Christian, but the joint mission of God's redeemed people. And that means you have a role to play. And it means you need your brothers and sisters to remain faithful in this mission. It means that God intends this mission to succeed, and in order for this mission to succeed, for for him to receive glory and for his praise to be proclaimed, it means that we must go about it together. Now, let me get very practical for like one minute. Maybe you are saying, I just don't know where to start. Right? Like, I struggle to be afraid, and sometimes I am apathetic, but by God's grace, you know, I, 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 want, I want to embody this kind of courage. I, I, I long to see him made much of. What do I do? Let, let me give you a sort of, this is not a progression, but these are all things that you can do to, to, to be faithful, to move uh, out towards this mission. The first thing you do, super, super low commitment. Pray. Pray that the Lord would give you opportunities with unbelievers to speak. Trevor said here uh, a little bit ago, we have a God who answers our prayers. Listen, you need to understand, this is God's mission before it's your mission. It's not like, it's not like this is like God's giving you something just to just occupy your time. This is God's mission, and when you pray to him, like, God, help me to be about your mission, he's going to answer that prayer. So pray. Okay, here, here's something else, a little bit more committal. Invite someone to church. Right, you, you're, you're out, you know, Work, neighborhood, invite someone to church. Hey, come out with me. You could serve them, right? As the Lord would give opportunity, you could actually serve people. You could, you could build relationships in such a way that you would actually serve real physical, tangible needs, and along with praying, look for opportunities that the, the Lord would give you in that context to have gospel conversations. What's well, something else you could do? Give people resources, right? I know a lot of you got like some good books at home. Be like, hey, yo, would you want to read this book with me? Let's read it together. Let's talk about it. Tell me what you think. 
see what the Lord might do. And, and, and then, of course, declare his praises. Right? Preach the gospel. Right? As, as you find yourself in all the different contexts you are in, look for opportunities, pray for courage, and then take the opportunities that God gives you to boldly proclaim the gospel, trusting that he will use it for his purposes. And let's encourage one another in that. That's what he's made you. That's the mission that he's given to you. But now, lastly, you need to see the mercy he's shown you. Listen, I don't want this sermon to be like some rah-rah, let's take the hill speech. That's not what this is. I, I, do, I hope you're fired up for the kingdom of God. I hope you're fired up to see the gospel advance in the world. I'm telling you, that's why, why this church exists, to see the gospel go out, to be, see the gospel made much of in Christ proclaim. And I hope you deeply long to see that in this church, in your own lives. But what I want to ask you is, is what is it that's going to motivate you to that end? Or, or maybe a better way to put it is, what's going to move you to that end? To move towards your neighbor, your coworker, your, your family member, and to ask them about their soul, to, to invite them to church, to ask them if they want to read the Bible with you or read a good book with you or sit them down and explain the gospel to them. What's going to move you and move words out of your mouth that are the, the proclamation of his excellencies? See, like if, if you leave here and you're like, okay, I try really hard and when I'm, like, I'm going to all right, I got the goal. I'm going to preach the gospel to three people this week. Like, no, that's, that is not the logic of the scriptures. The logic of the scriptures is what will move you out to the world, what will move you out to the unbelievers in your life is when you come to grips, when you see the beauty of the mercy that he has shown to you. Did you just hear what I said? It's not you going home and setting up yourself a nice little regiment, setting up some rules for yourself. It is when you set your eyes upon Jesus Christ and see in him the beauty of the mercy he has shown to you, that is the thing that will move you out. And so let's look for a moment at the mercy that he's shown us. Look again at verse 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You, you, you see, here's what I'm trying to tell you. You will proclaim with your words and with your lives what you find to be most valuable, most lovely, and most beautiful. And the most beautiful thing you will ever see or experience in your entire lives is the redemptive work of God that he brings through his son in his life and death and resurrection. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were his enemies, but now you are his people. You were strangers to mercy, but now you are the objects of his mercy. You'll only see the beauty of this salvation if first you see the ugliness and the hopelessness of your condition. Now, Peter reminds us that we were in darkness and headed for eternal darkness. In other words, we were absolutely blinded by our own rebellion to God. Or as the Apostle John says, those who love the darkness rather than the light because our deeds were evil. 
We hated the light and we hid from the light. We were like cosmic cockroaches. We were like cosmic cockroaches who said the light showed up. And you know, you ever do that? Uh, Hopefully not. You don't walk in your house and there's cockroaches everywhere. But you know, you flick on the light and they all scurry. That's us. Or, or, Or like Gollum. You know, you've seen the Lord of the Rings. Like Gollum, who would rather hide in a dark cave and indulge his destructive cravings. And so we, we're just like, we've made ourselves fit only for, for what Jesus calls the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, in verse 10, Peter uses the language of the prophet Hosea. If you're not familiar with the, the sort of progression of Hosea, uh, God comes to one of his prophets, Hosea, and he asks him, he tells him, commands him to take to himself uh, a wife of harlotry, to, take to, to marry a prostitute. And it's a, it's a parable. It's an analogy for God's relationship to Israel, right? In the, in, the, in, the, in the analogy, Hosea is God and the prostitute is Israel. And he's saying, this is what it's been like to be in relationship with you. I'm the faithful husband, and you're the, uh, you're the adulterous wife who just constantly goes after other lovers. And for Israel, those other lovers were all the idols, all of the false gods. And from this union, right, Hosea marries this prostitute, and from this union come two children, a boy and a girl. And God comes to Hosea, and he says, here's what you're going to name those children. You're going to name the boy, not my people. And you're going to name the girl No Mercy. And, and the, the, the story or the point of the story is pretty obvious, right? What, what does our adultery, what does our idolatry, what does our spiritual rebellion give birth to? What are the results of that? We are not the people of God. We are not the objects of his mercy. You know, that's what we deserve. It's a picture of what you and I deserve This is our sin, that we have looked on God, who is matchless in beauty. We've looked on the array of all of his excellencies, who calls us into the joy of knowing and loving him, but we have gone after lesser beauties. We have chased after false gods. We have built our lives around things that are less valuable and less worthy, and called them God, and made them ultimate in our lives. We have given our hearts to things that promise a temporary kind of satisfaction, but leave us emptier than before, but we don't care as long as we don't have to submit ourselves to the Lord. And so we deserve to be cast out and cut off and severed from God's goodness forever. We deserve to get what our sin has given birth to, not my people, no mercy. But the Lord comes to Hosea and tells him of a day that's coming when he will redeem his faithless and idolatrous bride. And listen to what he says. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her, uh, I will give her vineyards and I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, and verse 21, in that day, and this is what Peter is quoting, he says, in that day, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And she shall say, you are my God. And Peter says, that's you. 
He says, that's you. Once, once you were not my people, but now in Christ, God says to you, you are my people. Once you were no mercy, but now God has shown you mercy. And it's interesting. It doesn't quite come through in 1 Peter, but in, in the Old Testament, that is actually a verb. It's, it's, it's literally like, he will mercy, no mercy. He will mercy you. How can this be? How can the Lord show us mercy and count us among his people? How can he call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light? How can we be made into his beloved children? Mark 15, 33 says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus Christ went to the cross and his soul was pierced by an eternal darkness. Darkness is the judgment of God. Right, And this is what we find, that we were a part of the domain of darkness. Blind in our sin and fit only for an eternal darkness. But on the cross, Jesus takes that darkness into his own heart. That's why a darkness covers the land. He cries out to his father, but there is no mercy. Only judgment. The one who was his very son becomes no mercy. You are not my people. Can you imagine that? God the Father. You see, on the cross, Jesus bore the full penalty of your rebellion and your idolatry. And look, he bears the full penalty. Look, what, what is it? You, it is, the, the, should be the great joy of our souls and our hearts to proclaim his mercies. And yet every day, every week, we fail to give him the praise and honor that he deserves. And yet G- Jesus lives a perfect life, proclaiming his excellencies, lifting him, him up. And he also dies on the cross for all of those failures. For, all, for all, of the, all of the times this week when you had opportunity to proclaim his excellencies and you didn't, still he went to the cross. Still, he, 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 he hung there under the, the weight of your sin. He rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. Can I just ask, is that you this morning first? Is that, is that you? Like, if, if you have not come into relationship with Christ by faith, look, can I tell you what faith that saves is? It's, it, it comes by mercy, and therefore it is undeserved. Faith that saves is seeing the mess of your life and seeing all of your failures and all of your sin and saying, nevertheless, I trust he will be merciful to me. The gospel's in that word, nevertheless, isn't it? Even though I have done nothing to merit his kindness or his love or his blessing. Nevertheless, he will be merciful to me. That's faith that saves. If, if, if you're hearing this for the first time this morning, or maybe you're hearing it for, you know, the hundredth time, but it's, it's clicking for you in a new way, would you come talk to me or talk to a member in this church? And listen, here, here's, here's my point. Let me close. 
when that beauty, when, when you go to the cross and there you see the God who is worthy of all praise and all glory and all adoration, you see him putting to death his own son for your failures to glorify him, for your sin. When you see God saying to his son, no mercy, you are not my people, so that he can come to you and say, you are my people. A holy nation, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for my own possession. When you see that beauty, when that beauty begins to settle in your soul and penetrate your heart, you will not be able to help but speak of it. I'm not saying it won't be hard. Okay, don't hear me say, I'm not saying it, you won't have to you know, pray to the Lord for courage, but what will well up in you is a, is a desire for that beauty to be seen by everyone you know. And praise God, he delights to use weak people to accomplish that mission. And we fit the bill, don't we? A bunch of weak people that he uses by his grace to fulfill his mission in the world. He's made you his people so that you will proclaim his excellencies. So abide in the beauty of Jesus Christ in the gospel and speak boldly about his excellencies. The glory of God, the majesty of Jesus the King about the light to a world that is darkness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we, we pray that you would indeed make us faithful. Not, not because... Uh, not, not out of a sense of, of um, like obligation or uh, a sense of, of guilt or fear, uh, but Lord, would you make us faithful because we have seen your grace, because your mercy has been poured out upon us. Uh, as we see your mercy, would you fill us with love for you? Would you fill us with a sight of your beauty such that we, we long to, to speak of it, that we long to, to show it, we long to tell people about it? Uh, not that we might make a name for ourselves, but that uh, we might make a name for you. That the, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's our desire. We long for it. Make us useful instruments in your hands for the sake of that mission. Guard us from th this kind of missions drift. We can become so insular. We become focused on what's happening here. And Lord, we do have to give attention to what's happening inside these four walls. And yet let us not forget that you have called us, that you have made us a people for a purpose, that we might proclaim your excellencies to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.